Welcome back to Black Muse. I'm Clarence Waldron. Before we get started with tonight's guest, who you're going to love, I want to give a special shout out and thank you to Howard Sandifer and his wife, Darlene Sandifer. They are the founders of the Chicago West Community Music Center for this, for this video podcast. They said, let's go get up close and personal with some of our favorite newsmakers and celebs. So with Tonight, internationally acclaimed jazz saxophonist Donald Harrison. You know who he is. He's also now a big chief of the Congo Square Nation. He's a true master of the music. And the National Endowment for the Arts, you know, gave him a named him a jazz fellow. So let me just stop talking. Let's hear from the man himself, Mr. Donald Harrison. What's up? Oh, it's just great to be in your company. I've known uh, you, Clarence Walden, who, are, in my estimation, is one of our great icons in keeping uh, Black culture, history, and positive movement alive. Uh, I met you when you were uh, at Ebony and Jet Magazine, such a power broker. I couldn't believe that you were my friend. So it's good to be here talking with you. <laughs> uh, the music that I love, and uh, I think that uh, the way I play music is to bring all of us together in peace and love and prosperity and to uh, move to the highest ideals that we can. Cool. So let's start at the top. You are a big chief of the Congo Square Nation. How did that come about? Who gave you that title? Talk to us, what is that? Well, in New Orleans, we should all know that uh, there was a place in New Orleans called Congo Square, which is still there today. And that's where Africans could participate in their culture from their homeland. They could do the same things that we're doing in Africa here in New Orleans, which, and that was a very unique situation, you know, they, they would toil as uh, enslaved people during the week, but then Sunday was a free day where they could be themselves. And that uh, led to what I call offshoot, the offshoot cultures of New Orleans, one being uh, jazz culture, second line culture, and benevolent societies, and, and the other being the tribal culture. I'm one of the people, like the old musicians, who, who comes from both cultures. You know, they, they both inform each other. Without Congo Square, there would be no uh, New Orleans jazz, which influenced the world and changed the scope of the world's culture and the history of, uh, of, the, of the world's music. So I, I call Congo Square the root one of the root incubators of uh, New Orleans music, is music of the United States and now the music of the world. And uh, my father was a big chief, but I had to earn the right to going through uh, the rituals 
and being tested to become a, a recognized chief and the chief of an important place like Congo Square. But I, I, I'm keeping the culture, the musical culture alive, as well as the culture. Uh, and and uh, I like to think of myself as the missing link in jazz because my the, the way I look at it, it comes from antiquity. You know, the music of Congo Square comes from the beginning of time. It's connected to that because it comes from Africa. And then uh, later I got to play with every era of jazz musicians and I tied the whole, in my estimation, the whole history together and then and, and tossed it back like a shiny penny, hopefully. All right. <laughs> okay. Now we also could call you a doctor because you recently got an honorary doctorate from Berkeley College of Music. What was that like for you? It's an incredible experience to be uh, recognized by your peers and especially an important institution like uh, the Berkeley College of Music because so many of our greats have uh, matriculated in those halls from Quincy Jones to uh, myself and uh, Pat Bethany, young drummers like Joe Dyson. So many guys have gone through those halls and gone on to uh, become uh, trendsetters in the, in the music world. Cool, cool. Now you study music as well at Berkeley. What are the benefits of having studied jazz? Do you therefore know what you're doing or you know what you want to do? What does it mean? Well, uh, I think what you learn in school is some of the nuts and, and bolts. Or uh, if, if you would have it, uh, you learn what the skeleton of jazz is, but you have to live life and play with the great masters to put the flesh on the bones, you know, to make it come to life. So I was fortunate to have both experiences. Uh, Berkeley is a great school because there is every type of music that you could think about. Uh, there's teachers who have been in those worlds. You know, my, I got with Art Blakey because my, my saxophone teacher, Billy Pierce, was playing with Art Blakey. So, so he introduced me to Art Blakey and said, oh, this young man, he can really play. And Art Blakey said, go get your horn. And then I sat in and he said, you'll be a jazz messenger one day. But my teacher was playing with Art Blakey. So I, I, I had, that was my direct connection to Art Blakey. And, and a lot of my teachers are also told uh, a lot of great people about. First time I played with Sonny Stitt was at, uh, at the Berkeley College of Music. A lot of guys, great musicians came through and we got to meet them and make uh, connections with them. I remember when the great trumpeter Woody Shaw came, came to Berkeley, he said, what are you doing in Boston? You need to move to New York right now. But I met him there. The environment at Berkeley is great because the teachers, some of them are playing you know, the bands that you wanna play in and with the people that you wanna find and, and they introduce you if they feel that you're worthy of such. And also there's all types of music so if you like classical music, but you didn't uh, have a chance to play that, you can go and study that kind of music. If you wanted to engineer, you could study how to engineer 
if you wanted to write gospel music or any any other type of music, they're open-minded like that. So that's the, one of the reasons I love Berkeley College of Music. But once again, I had to go play with the masters to get the lessons of the masters. Mm, okay, speaking of masters, so you were named a jazz master by the National Endowment for the Arts. That had to be a big thrill because so many big masters before you have been honored the same way. Elaborate on that. Yeah, I was quite surprised because I didn't know that I was nominated to uh, be in the list of uh, what they say is uh, America's most important jazz musicians. And I found out there's only 144 jazz masters at this point. This year, there'll be a, they only let in four people a year, it'll be 148. But just to be thought of in, in that realm is mind boggling. But I have taught a lot of young people and I think it's the uh, value of doing honest hard work every day and being diligent. I, I always chose music and to learn music before everything. So I guess uh, it sort of paid off and uh, to be recognized by one of the great countries in the history of man as one of their uh, elite players is beyond my comprehension, but I'm happy it happened. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Now you studied your idol, uh, the late Charlie Parker, and he once said, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. If you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. What did he mean by that, Donald? Well, if we use the, the idea of someone writing a story, if you write a story, something that you actually saw, you can get to the details of it better than me. Say, if you wrote a story about what you had this morning for breakfast, you're the person that can tell that story. You have the great detail of that story what the food tasted like, how you felt, what color the wall was, how the weather was that day. Or if you asked me to write the story of what you had for breakfast this morning, I would be clueless. <laughs> so it's just a simple scenario. Everything that you uh, have experienced and live, you can do uh, that when you're playing music or composing music, it comes through. Each musician is just a sum total of his experiences and the natural gifts that he's developed that, that a higher power has given him. So Charlie Parker was so brilliant. He summed everything up in one sentence. He's everything, you know, he said, they teach you there's a boundary line to art, but there's no boundary line. But just those two sentences tells you everything that you need, need to do. And when I, when I read that in high school, I decided to uh, play with every era of jazz musicians and to learn from all the great masters of all different styles of music that I could so that when I played something, I would have lived it and it would be true, you know? And, and through doing that, 
I learned a lot about people, about different cultures. And I learned that we're all the same and uh, that uh, something that older musicians used to say, which I couldn't understand when I was young, that all music is the same, that is true. I ultimately came to, we all use the same 12 notes and we all use the same rhythms. So we're all using the same ingredients, but we're just doing it our way. Uh, and a further thought about something as simple as cooking a chicken. If you take a chicken to China, they're gonna cook it the way they cook it. If you take it to Jamaica, they're gonna cook it the way they cook it. If you take it to New Orleans, we're gonna put some Creole, might make some Creole gumbo with it. You take it to Chicago, y'all hook it up y'all way. But it's the same chicken. So it, it, it teaches you, music has taught me through my diligence that human beings we're all the same. We just have a different, a little different knack the way we do things, but the ingredients are all the same. And then further along, I started looking at quantum physics and the concept of a multiverse is that a number of uh, universes could have formed together, but they would have the same ingredients and they, they would, uh, be shaped differently by how that multiverse uh, came together. So then I, I started thinking of that uh, musically. And now I'm dealing with something I'm calling a, a multiverse music uh, concept that, that shows how me learning all of these, uh, learning from all of these masters in different uh, types of ways of uh, using music shows that it's all the same and how uh, I can uh, take ingredients from any of those styles and create uh, something that's true to those styles, but unique to me. That's one of the things that started was uh, something called Nouveau Swing in the eighties, which is now uh, unbeknownst to me, very influential amongst the younger musicians. And uh, a lot of them who uh, took that concept and, and developed their style from it are becoming the leading lights in the music world today. So, uh, you know, you never know how things are gonna turn out, but if everybody stays on their path from a loving perspective, I think that, uh, great things can happen to human beings. Cool. So you have new music coming out. How, how, how long do you need to, to fine tune it at this point? Oh, we're there. We're, just, we're mixing now. So I'm oh. in the studio mixing. So yeah, we're mixing the... Uh, I took a, the concept, the multiverse concept, and I, I uh, created what they call a salsa, tropical salsa version of, of a song created a reggae version, or what they call smooth jazz version, a trap hip hop version, a jazz version, a bossa nova from Brazil, and about 10 different ways to look at it. But I'm calling the jazz version the omniverse version of the, of the multiverse <laughs> because 
I took everything from all those other styles and put it into jazz. And, and uh, it has, you can hear all those other styles coming through, but you can hear that it's jazz and you can hear that it's moving in another direction. So I'm very happy about where we are now with music. And uh, it's another light switch. I keep, you know, going into rooms and turning the light on and seeing something new. Okay. Different universes and and then it, it, it forms the next the next path for me. Funny story. Your father went out and bought you a saxophone when you were a little kid. You didn't ask for it, but he just got it. Hmm. So you got it, you played it for a little while, and then you just put it in the closet. That's the end of that. What made you pull that saxophone out? And thankfully you did, because here's your whole hmm. career. Go ahead. Yeah, when he bought me the saxophone, well, let me put it like this. When I was about nine years old, my father was walking past a music store and he saw the saxophone in the window. And he was a Charlie Parker enthusiast. But I don't know if that's the reason he bought it. He just said to himself, my son should have this saxophone. And so he, he bought it to the house. And I was looking at his beautiful gold instrument. And I played it in elementary school for maybe a year and, and a half. Then I, I, you know, kids, they, they don't want to do things for a long time. So I put it in the closet. And then I was listening to the radio and this beautiful song comes, comes on by the great Grover Washington. It was Mr. Magic. And when I heard Mr. Magic, I remembered I had a saxophone. I said, let me learn how to play Mr. Magic. And then I, I, I uh, got the horn out of the closet. And in no time, I couldn't believe it. I was playing Mr. Magic. I didn't, couldn't remember the notes, but I, could, I figured out how to play Mr. Magic. So uh, immediately when we got back to school, I joined the uh, marching band with some guys who had a an R&B band heard me playing Mr. Magic. And they said, you want to join the band? I said, okay, I'll try it. And then they started paying me money. <laughs> okay. And then the girls liked me more. I was like, this is fun. You play the horn, you get paid money, and the girls like you more. And I was, you know, in about 10th or 11th grade. And the next thing I knew, I fell in love with it. My father played uh, some Charlie Parker records for me and said, try to learn this. And it was a little, a lot, I would say a little, it was a lot harder. <laughs> so I had to really practice and try to figure out what Charlie Parker was doing. And I, I fell in love with Charlie Parker. And th then I read that statement, if you didn't live it, it won't come out of your horn. And it changed the tra trajectory of who I am, I believe. And, I'm just thankful that uh, that the forces, that a higher power, that God uh, put me on this path. So I can't believe it. My father had some kind of premonition and I think he was right. All right, now, now did your father play the sax as well or he played no instrument at all? My father was, a great blues singer, and I wish I had recorded it when he was alive. 
but he, and he was also a great cultural bearer. He was a chief of four different tribes, but he was a, a legendary chief who taught me what they call the old time ways. And uh, he could sing cultural music uh, like no other. And I'm just fortunate to be around someone like that who, who took all styles of music seriously at home. We, one minute we'd be listening to Ravi Shankar, then we'd be listening to Etta James, Charlie Parker, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, uh, African drummers from the UNESCO series, just, just all kind of music at home. James Brown, there was no uh, liking one style of music that was loving all styles of music. Okay, okay. And you work with some of the masters of music, of jazz in particular. Miles Davis, any takeaways, any memories of that experience? Well, Miles changed me because if you went by his house, he would be doing five or six things at one time, but he would do each one for like 15 minutes and then move to the next. And you could see that he was moving each of these things forward. And he was holding a conversation with you, talking about the uh, music and what you liked and what he liked, and who the great players were. You know, he'd be writing a song on the piano, asking your ideas and telling you his. And then he'd start doing a painting and he would uh, paint, do the painting a little while. Then we might be looking at a movie. So looking at the movie with him, taking time to look at the movie, take a, some time and look at a newspaper and talk about uh, topics of the day and talk about food. And all of these things, you were learning so much. It's like being in a school with, with 10 teachers at one time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing about it, he was also open to your ideas. So that uh, that made me realize that I was kind of lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it changed my work ethic, you know, to a person who who's tackle, who tackles a lot of different things. So uh, he was quite he was quite uh, a brilliant guy, and he. Uh, when he looked at you, he looked like he could look through you and see everything about you. Something about his eyes. Really? Like he had some kind of other wisdom. Like, mm. he was, like he had figured out everything about you. Whoa. And he, but he helped you with it. You know? He knew I liked, well, he, he knew that uh, the things I liked and what I was trying to do. So he helped me to see how to do them better. I remember uh, I was having a rough period in some kind of way he knew and he said, call my manager, he's gonna manage you for free. And uh, just different things that he did. He was like, how does Miles know? <laughs> but I, I had his manager for free. He didn't charge me any, any money. You did, wow, okay. Art Blakey was like that as well. How so? What's your takeaway from Art Blakey? Well, he was, you know, 
the guy who could take all these uh, musicians who are working to find their place in the music and groom them on the bandstand to uh, find their voices and be great leaders. And he did this from the, from the 50s until he passed away. You know, the, the, the Jazz Messenger family, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, all the people who are Jazz Messengers are brothers because of Art Blakey. And we, we all were taught the same way. And uh, the way he played the drums, most people call him the musician who had the biggest beat of the, a musician who swung the most in jazz. Mm. So mm. always that. How if you if you didn't learn how to swing or groove playing with Art Blakey, then you couldn't get it. But everybody who played with him, they grooving, you know. It's just it's just a lot of things like that about Art Blakey and just his uh way of taking one sentence sentence like bird and getting you to see the whole scope of something. Deep, deep. So now, did you get some of your first notices when you were touring with him? Your first media attention, did, did that start with him or not quite? Well, there was another drummer by the name of Roy Haynes who I started with when I was 19. Roy Haynes, okay. <laughs> so Roy, yeah, when I started with him, I started getting attention. And then I was also playing with a guy named Brother Jack McDuff. Ooh, yes, indeed. But I'm almost positive the older musicians like Roy and Art talk to each other because before I went with Art Blakey, Roy uh, called me and said, you're going with my brother now for a while. And I didn't know what he was talking about. So I called him back and said, your brother? He said, yeah, just wait a minute, you'll see. Then Art Blakey, I joined his band. He said, you hmm. understand now? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> so all of, you know, there were gentlemen, they talked to each other, taken for a while. But I went back with Roy Haynes. I stayed with Roy Haynes for 15 years off and on. Oh, wow. So they with Art Blakey for six years. But they all, uh, they all taught me a lot of things. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how I got to be so lucky, but I, I, just, I just pinched myself every day, you know, that I was around these great individuals and the lessons get deeper. The older I get, the deeper the lessons get. Hmm. Hmm. So Lena Horn, you oh. toured with her. I know, you, I know you appeared in New York City because I was at that show. So tell me about that experience. How long were you with her? I was with Lena Horn for six years. Six years, okay. Yeah. And we called her the lady. The lady, all right. <laughs> she was uh, an, another ultimate nurturer and uh, seer. And person. she was a person who had the biggest heart that you can imagine and humble. Mm. I think she did, you would, if you, when you got to know her, you would never think she had done all of those things. And she would look out for her band and she was she wanted me uh to get more notoriety so i was shy when i was in the bands you know you're playing with lena horn wow so i'd just be looking at her like 
Oh my God, it's Lena Horn over there. And I'd stand in the back. And then she would come grab me and said, I want you up front with me. I want the people to see you just as much as me. And I, I would go up there for a while and I would go back in the back. She said, from now on, you're standing next to me so people know who you are. And if you look at those videos, you know, if you were at the shows, you would notice that I was standing next to Lena Horn. Yeah. You know, uh, when I look back up, up, up upon that, it's another another thing that makes me shake my head that such an icon in civil rights, with the movies, as a human being, as an actress, uh, shared her platform with me and thought enough to give me the opportunity to learn to play music with her and to help uh, the world see me as a, as a musician. Yeah, you and Terrence Blanchard were like a dynamic duo back in the day. Have you talked to him recently? I haven't, he's quite busy uh, doing a lot of film scores, I guess, and living in, in his world. But at that time, uh, we we uh, started with Art Blakey together. Well, I met him in New Orleans, but when we got to New York, we started with Art Blakey together. And uh, we decided to put a band together uh, and I guess it was a dynamic duo, but it was really two bands in one because I respected his ideas and he respected mine. Mm -hmm. So I, I was able to bring my ideas and uh, we played them and I, and I did my best on the ideas that Terrence was trying to develop, you know, uh, and, and uh, we really listened to each other intently and tried to play off of each other. So uh, that was when they were calling us Young Lions. <laughs> and, uh, yep, yep. and uh, I guess we were the beginning of the resurgence of jazz. Uh, I remember when I first got to New York, there were like five or six guys on each instrument. You know, nobody wanted to play jazz, but we did and uh, that, that teamwork that we uh, had for making sure that jazz became uh, a music that people could uh, play and make a living off again. It, it worked out. You look at all the, all the new young faces that are playing nowadays. It's, it's too many to keep up with now. Mm. We want we want to grow the music and and uh, make sure it has its proper place amongst all the other things that we hear musically in the world today. I also read that you mentored and worked with Notorious B.I.G. What did your work on together? We worked on a lot of uh, ideas about hip hop music. And we worked on a lot of ideas of how to incorporate other styles of music into hip hop music. And we worked on uh, the idea of the underlying message of what he was doing, uh, being to uplift people. Uh, the, the ideals people had about themselves, of people that 
you know, you see images of them that says that you're uh, less than or that you can't achieve. But when you listen to the lyrics of Notorious B.I.G., you think it's one thing, but it's really positive personal reinforcement. And uh, the reason he has all of those murals is because the kids, the young people, some of them who may be hopeless or some of them uh, who need someone to tell them that you're, uh, you're okay and you're special, that message is in the music. That's why he has murals. Wow. Okay. Now, wasn't John Baptiste a mentee of yours? Oh, yeah. He was an incredible student. I really loved when he was around me because he was a sponge and he was uh, a great learner, quick, learned quick. The notorious BIG learned quick too. And, you know, all of these, the thing that uh, I will say about all of the students who, who get to the higher echelon in the music industry that came from me, they were all hard workers. You know, if you gave them something to work on, they will come back understanding that and understanding more about what you told them with more questions on how you could do it a, a, a plethora of different ways. So it was the same with Notorious B.I.G., the same with Jonathan Baptiste. But to see his trajectory is mind-boggling, and and to see him standing on the stage with five Grammys, yeah. you know, yeah. I, you know, I, my life has been unbelievable to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, uh, all these young people that I've been around, and to see them uh, do the things that we worked on to a level that I could not have dreamed. How do you dream of producing the king of East Coast rap? It's impossible. You just work on it and then something happens and it manifests. But those, you know, see those positive messages. You know, like I'm saying, thought of a fool, as a fool in school, but I'm not, you know, sky's the limit, all these messages inside the music. And John and Baptiste's messages be human, stay human. You know, the, his, his, the main thing he says is be a human being. So to see these positive messages that all these young people are putting in music and to know that we talked about it and that, you know, it was their job to do it, do things that I couldn't do, but to be, be a part of it in any way, uh, it's just a beautiful thing. And hopefully, all of these lessons will pass down to society. These these things need to be part of the conversation, and need to be part of what we do. Now, your nephew is also a mentee of yours. Yes, Mr. Christian Scott. How is he doing? I know he's doing everything, but I know you're real proud of him. Nephew Christian Scott, uh, a tune day. He uh, is an uh, incredible talent, and he uh, quite busy these days and quite popular. He's been on the cover of Downbeat more than me. <laughs> Actually, I've never been on the cover of Downbeat, so I'm proud of him. Mm. But uh, the thing that really makes me happy is he 
he states that his the things that he's working on are because of the nouveau swing I, I created that gave him the ideas to take uh, music to another level, but it's the root of his music. But he's moving in his own direction now and creating a, a new legacy for, for the music. And I'm always happy when I get a phone call from him and he tells me, Uncle, I love you. And I tell him, I love you too, man. And mm -hmm. keep up the good work. And, and uh, he's, he has a lot of fan base, man. He asked me to play with him and the place was packed. Mm -hmm. and they were all singing, singing his songs. And I was just elated to be in, in the middle of all those young people. It's always a great thing. Yeah. To, you know, I play with all the older guys, but now the younger guys are calling me to play yeah, with yeah. them. And uh, I'm learning stuff from them. I taught them and now they're teaching me. Art Blake used to say, a fair exchange is no robbery. Because he said he was learning from us as well. So I feel like I'm, I'm in that position where I learned from all these old masters and the young people that I learned from was showing me different ways to look at it from their experiences. Beautiful. Full circle. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've recorded several you know, big albums, including, of course, Nouveau Swing. What was the making of that? Were you deliberately trying to create a new sound? Did you think that it was going to catch on the way that it has? Yeah, when I did Nouveau Swing, I was just uh, putting the music that we grew up dancing to, because our generation was dancing to all the music uh, in a jazz context, acoustic jazz context. One day I heard that Art Blakey and, and uh, James Brown go together. <laughs> and then I started writing the music like that. And uh, those recordings uh, stayed on the radio, the two recordings of, of that, initial recordings of that style, and, and unprecedented two years each. Because usually jazz records last about three months, but each of them were uh, on the radio forever. And you never know how something is going to uh, be uh, thought of by people who listen to music. But fortunate, fortunately, audiences loved it. And I, I had a revelation that I was uh, playing music that came from the people, from living with the people. So, uh, my respect for the people and, and different cultures, cultures that manifest in the music. So maybe that's why they had a natural affinity for it because it was, it was their music in a jazz context. Mm. So they, they, felt, they felt and heard themselves in the music. So what I do is just a, 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 a back and forth. Now I know what they say when they say I'm playing people music because it comes from the people. Comes from the people. Do you have any favorite albums that you recorded that you say this is the real essence of me? This is one of my favorite albums. Do you have, because I was playing things today and I couldn't even decide which one I would pick. Do you have a favorite album? Oh, that's a hard question because each one is like a child 
you know, for, for that moment. And uh, I, I, I don't know how to choose a child that you love the most, but I think uh, when Nouveau Swing came out, that felt good. And the record I did with uh, Terrence Blanchard came out, we did uh, New York Second Line. That felt good. Just, just in the, the things I did with Eddie Palmieri, those records. It's all the guy, Art Blakey, <laughs> so many people. You know, I, I even had some bootleg stuff with Notorious B.I.G. We had, you know, it's just all those things create the whole. I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite. I have a lot of things that I love. And the thing that, that I'm always uh, thinking of is uh, creating what I'm feeling right now. That's always the most important thing to get out what I'm feeling right now. It's like, uh, until you can get it out of you, it's like a weight, you know, that you, that you it's a beautiful thing, but it, until it comes out, it feels like you're, you're being held back. So I'm always trying to get these ideas to the outside of me. And hopefully uh, they will be understood like the things in the past. And, uh, help myself and younger musicians and people find a sense of community. And for music, for me, music is uh, about creating a sense of community, about uh, making people feel joy in their lives, which is what was happening in Congo Square, going right back to Congo Square. When those uh, people who had the worst existence you can imagine every day, when they got to Congo Square, it was their time of transcendence, where all of that stuff went away and they went to into another realm and they were free. And the, the souls were free and they were at peace. So I always think everyone who heard that music, they kept coming back to hear it. Because once you're free, even if you weren't going through the old things that the people who were creating these sounds of freedom uh, and transcendence, you still had something to bear. That moment of freedom and peace touched the world. So everyone wanted to have that for themselves. And that's what music does. And that's what those uh, enslaved people in Congo Square created for the world. So that's, that's the key right there for me. All right, cool, cool. I just got a few more questions real quick. You're the co-founder and artistic director of an internship program. Tell me about that. Yeah, we, I uh, was asked if I could do anything in New Orleans, what would it be? I, want, I said I wanted to pass down the things that I, I learned from older musicians to younger musicians. So I started a program uh, at Tipitina's where 
the focus was to uh, develop young musicians who would be become professionals while they're in high school, attain a professional level of artistry, but also uh, be equipped to get a scholarship to college if they uh, if they so pursue wanted to pursue that. So we we've had millions of dollars worth of scholarships through the program. And you know all the professional musicians that came out of the program if you if you look at it. So uh, I'm happy that all these students are doing great things in the business. Some of them are million selling producing uh, artists who, who work with everybody from Beyonce to Lil, Lil Wayne. And when I talk to some of the guys, they say they teach the lessons to other uh, producers. So they tell me I have a whole crew of people that I haven't met yet. So one day maybe we'll have a party and get together. But just all, you know, every time you teach one person and they get to a certain level, they teach another group of people. So it can, okay. it's like it's a snowball effect, you know? All these young people going out there, when you look at Jonathan Peace, that teach, he has a group of people that he that he's helping him. My nephew, uh, Esperanza Spalding, all these guys who and ladies who have their bands now, they're 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 doing the same thing. So it's uh, exponential growth that we're creating and, and more more love. <laughs> Years ago when I was with Jet Magazine, I asked you to name some of the new voices, the new jazz folks coming up. And you immediately said Esperanza Spalding. She was just and look at her now. If we asked you that today, who would who should be on our radar? Who is up and coming? Do you think? Do you hope? I'm thinking of a saxophonist, but I I'm getting older now. The names get, <laughs> but there, there I'll say this: there are so many nowadays. It's mind-boggling, you know, and they're all worthy. But uh. And they call me and they, some of them play with me. I know there's a drummer who plays with me by the name of Brian Richburg. He's, uh, he's gonna be great. But Joe Dyson, who was also my drummer, he's playing with Pat Metheny now. So, uh, two are special drummers that, uh, that even the older drummers say, oh, these guys got their own style already. Okay connected to the uh to the lineage of drummers so i'm gonna i'm gonna say those two guys because i'm watching them right now closely joe dyson on drums and brian richberg on drums two two names to, to look out for in the future okay and last question these years are sweeping by you made a reference to i've known you for about 30 years or whatever how long it's been have you thought about your legacy how would you want to be remembered? My motto has always been, do the best you can and get out the way, <laughs> you know? So uh, I just want to do as, as much good work as I can while I'm here and, and uh, leave the best example of who I am. Uh, and always remember this, that Art Blakey told us, I always said he's the king of one-liners. He used to say, light your candle. And if, 
your candle uh, lights the way for one person so they can make it, then your life is worthwhile. So I just light my candle every day. Bam, very good. Anything else Anything else you wanna share while I got you here? Anything else on your mind today? No, I just wanna say thank you for uh, inviting me to talk about this stuff. You guys taking your time to listen to a few words from me. I, I appreciate you more than you can imagine. And I appreciate you for being my friend all of these years. Absolutely. And everybody that you have, you are a national treasure, brother. Oh, look at you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I know what you've done. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.